tuning in to Microbiome Matters, a podcast for healthcare professionals and researchers brought to you by Yakult Science. This podcast aims to share latest research and insights from experts about the science behind our gut microbiome. Hello, my name is Rafaela and I'm the science communications intern at Yakult. And today I am joined by Professor Tim Spector, who is a professor of genetic epidemiology and director of the Twins UK Registry at King's College London. His current work focuses on the microbiome and has collaborated with experts around the world to conduct the largest nutritional study of its kind, the PREDICT study, in association with the nutritional sciences company, Zoe. In this episode with Professor Tim Spector, we will be talking about some of the emerging dietary components that may have an impact on our gut microbiota. Well, Professor Tim Spector, thank you so much for having a chat with us today. So in our previous podcast episodes, we were joined by other experts and we touched on the more common dietary factors that might have a effect on our gut microbiota, such as probiotics, prebiotics, dietary fiber and fermented foods. Can you perhaps share with us what are some of the less known and more emerging dietary components that might also affect our gut microbiota? The big field in nutrition at the moment is actually understanding this huge range of chemicals in plants, which are called polyphenols. And the best way of thinking about them is is natural defense chemicals that are in generally the plant leaves uh, or the seeds that protect them from the sun's rays. They uh, might also protect them against insects or, or damage. And in the past, these chemicals were sort of came under a broad name of antioxidants, but they, in the plant, they often give it their uh, distinctive colors and they're often very bright reds, dark greens, and they also give them particular tastes. So they are often quite bitter, tannic, so they, they give astringency on your tongue, they sort of dry out your tongue, and it, it's the sort of flavor you get in uh, drinking old red wine or the dregs of a bottle. Um, it's that that sharpness uh, that you get from the, uh, the sort of broccoli-type plants as well. And in general, these polyphenols are found in, in, in high numbers in many foods that, it, it, in a way, is, is a sign of how that, that plant has fought to survive. And in a way, it's... It, it's an element that is a strong, it has strong defenses. And we've, we're only just discovering about all the benefits of these chemicals because we didn't really understand before understanding the gut microbiome existed, what they were for or how they really got into the body. So what we're finding is that these uh, literally thousands of different chemicals of which only a percentage have really been isolated are present in most of the real whole foods that we eat. Uh, so particularly in these groups like berries, brightly colored plants, cabbages, but they're also in, in beans and things like uh, coffee, uh, green tea, uh, things with, with strong flavors. They're in dark chocolate and lots of it in extra virgin olive oil. Again, that if you think about it, that, that sort of bitter tannic taste is what tells you that there are lots of polyphenols 
And the, these chemicals can't be used directly by the body. So essentially they are like rocket fuel for the gut microbes. So the, the microbes break down the, the food to get at these polyphenols, which provide them with energy. And they then convert the rest of the, of the food package that comes with these polyphenols um, into other products, things like short chain fatty acids uh, that then signal uh, the human cells lining the gut and uh, send off this whole chain of uh, metabolic and immune signals that, that keep us healthy. So we're finding out that they already are vital for optimizing our health, optimizing our, our gut microbes. And it's really a, a sort of hidden source of fuel and energy for them that uh, we're realizing is vital, not only in the amount, but also we think the variety, because each microbe is going to be adapted slightly differently to to uh, use and feed off different of these polyphenol chemicals. And, and and they might break down a bit of the polyphenol and then pass it on to their neighbor. And that's why the microbes often work in groups or communities to maximize the food that's coming at them. So someone who has a high polyphenol diet is going to have a much healthier gut than someone who uh, who doesn't, who just relies on uh, ultra-processed foods that don't have any of those original ingredients in them. That's really interesting. So now that we've touched on a lot about polyphenols, if we move on to perhaps emulsifiers, do emulsifiers have a positive impact on our gut microbiota? And what is the evidence there? Emulsifiers are chemicals that are added to food to bind it together and uh, stop it the food separating and traditionally they've been used in most processed or ultra processed foods to uh, stick things together. But you do find them in things like chocolate um, uh, and there are some well-known raw natural ones. and There's some very highly chemical, more modern ones. Uh, and so it's a general term, but it's, it's pretty ubiquitous. And some of the early studies in the microbiome actually suggested they were harmful to the gut microbes because they would disrupt, in a way, the functioning of the gut microbes that weren't used to breaking them down. And essentially, the image was that you were like putting a form of glue down into your gut, that the, the microbes would stick together and wouldn't be able to function as well. So there haven't been any real definitive studies on emulsifiers, but I think at the moment the jury's out about whether we should be embracing them or we should be uh, worried about them. And the problem is generally most emulsifiers tend to go with ultra processed foods. The more emulsifiers you find in food, generally the more highly processed it is and the less healthy it is for many other reasons. So I think it's been difficult to do the, the, the experiments and most experiments have been done in, in mice rather than in, in humans. So at the moment, I, I, I would just err on the side of caution and say, if you can do without emulsifiers, you can find products without them. That's probably going to be better for your gut health uh, than with them. And now if we move on to personalized nutrition, which I know is a topic that you're very knowledgeable about, could you please explain to our listeners what the concept of personalized nutrition is? The, the concept is that one size fits all advice doesn't work. There's no such thing as the average uh, man or woman. 
and that the concept that all women in the world need 2,000 calories uh, optimally and they should base everything around that, that they should have this certain percentage of fats or carbohydrates in their diet. And, you know, it's all easy to understand. And this is this nutritional advice is based on some uh, clear science. It's all been shown to be nonsense. The old advice um, was based on this 100-year-old uh, idea of the calorie as being absolutely crucial. The concept that all calories are equal it also turns out to be nonsense because food is much more complex than uh, we have been led to believe. Uh, it's been shown that just in the, in the relatively few foods that we eat, we've found 25,000 different chemicals in those foods which interact with our 20,000 genes in our body. They interact with our uh, trillions of microbes, which also have um, 200 times more genes in our, in our body. So the whole mixtures of these chemicals is, is just out of our comprehension. And we try and dumb it down into these simple rules about fats, sugars, carbs and calories. And the important thing to realize is that once you realize there's no, no such thing as average, all the old research goes out the window. And I teamed up with this, this company called Zoe, who are a, uh, a data science company working in nutrition. And for the last uh, four years, we've been working on these predict studies, which we, we published the, the first um, three main papers in the last year, which is basically getting a th- the largest intervention nutritional study has ever done, where you take uh, over a thousand people and most of them were twins and gave them identical meals. And in that, the first thing we found was that everyone responds very differently to identical food. We had about eightfold difference in their uh, sugar responses, their insulin, their fat levels, inflammation and uh, the, the whole metabolic response was different, and that was even in identical twins. So once you realize that there is no such thing as an average response to food, it, the idea that you can give uh, whole populations the same advice about what to eat really goes out the window. As well, we also found that identical twins also had a very different microbiome. So the gut microbes inside them were hardly any any more similar than they were in, in in unrelated people. And this meant that when we looked at the food response, even of identical twins or genetic clones, we found they were often different. And one would have a much better fat response and the other one have a, a better uh, carbohydrate response. So once we'd got over the shock of those results, we said, well, OK, well, let's try and find out, you know, why some of these differences, what, what, what's causing it. And we determined that uh, it, there wasn't one factor that determined why we're all different. It's multiple factors that we really hadn't thought about in the past. So it turns out that our microbes do influence both our sugar responses and our fat responses, but they're not the only thing. Our genes play only a minor role in, say, our sugar responses, but no role really in our fat responses. And things like the, the food composition plays some role, but it's not the stuff you get on the label really doesn't explain how you respond to the food. As 
you know, we have been told should be the case. And other things started to come in, like your circadian rhythms, uh, whether you're a morning person, an evening person, how much sleep you had, how much you ate the night before, whether you exercised. All these kind of factors uh, were important in how you responded to each meal. And we know that your response to the meal in terms of generating a uh, like a glucose spike or an insulin spike or a triglyceride spike six hours afterwards, all these factors add up after each week and then after each year to change your metabolism to um, send signals back to the body that means that you're more likely to gain weight or have chronic inflammation and cause stress. So these subtle differences, which may not seem important to us or didn't until we started having the technology to look at it, make a big difference. And if you can start to pick what the best food is that suits your own metabolism, you, you don't have to worry about calories or anything else. You can just adjust your uh, habits to the, these foods. And that's, that's what we're doing with the company Zoe. And by basically these three inputs of the, the, the your sugar response, your fat response, and your gut microbiome measured by uh, high quality sequencing, we are able to give food scores back to individuals that give them a personalized score for each of the, of the common foods so they can decide, for example, you know, should you change from having a your banana every day to an apple every day or a pear? Should you have as your breakfast muesli or oat porridge? Should or you better off, you know, having a high fat breakfast? Things like this. So the idea is to give choice and not restriction. And that has been a commercial product now for three months in the US and should be arriving in the UK around autumn, I think, uh, depending on COVID. So that's very exciting because we're suddenly getting everyone is signing up for these studies who's even though they're paying for the product, but they're also signing up to be part of this research program so that we share all the data and we're getting a massive database of thousands of people's response to uh, identical meals or their own chosen meals. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg in, in this the future of personalized nutrition. But we, we find lots of surprises, though, in the data. So traditionally, people have looked at sugar spikes after eating as a way of assessing your response. And this is the you probably know that the oral glucose um, Tolerance test is, is the way people check whether you have pre-diabetes or diabetes and you drink a horrible uh, sugary drink and look at your sugar response. And generally that you see what happens in the first two hours and you measure that. Because we had millions of data points from these glucose monitors, because we everyone who's in these studies gets a two, uh, two week glucose monitor. And we then were able to look at the all the patterns of what was happening. We found that once you got to three hours after a meal, some people, about one in four people, ended up with a sugar dip after eating, say, a muffin or uh, a milkshake. And if you had a sugar dip that went below baseline that was significant, we found that you were significantly more likely to feel hungrier, feel more tired, and over that 24 hours, you were going to eat 20% more calories, even when we adjusted for everything else. So that in itself proves how individual everyone is. 
but also uh, because some people, you know, didn't have a spike eating the same muffin and others did, the person with a spike would obviously eat 20% more and therefore might be the reason why they got fatter over the year and the other person didn't. And But it also shows that absolutely clearly that all calories are not equal for the, for the same people because you and I might react completely differently to identical calorie uh, uh, breakfast. And that that really is, I, I think, where uh, the science is going and why it's so exciting, because we've suddenly got the the mix of the, the technology with these continuous glucose monitors that people can see a readout on their phone. You've got the ability to um, look at the microbiome in incredible detail and turn those tests around really fast, find amazing new parasites and bugs inside you that you didn't know were, uh, were important. And then you've also got the, the big computing power uh, to be able to crunch all these numbers and give it back to people on a personalized app. So I think it's it's an extremely exciting time for for nutrition. Oh, that's fantastic. And when autumn does come, I will definitely sign up to the Zoe app when it gets launched in the UK. If we now go back to the predict study, you mentioned that the first stage is now complete. Is there any more research going on in the predict study? And what are you hoping to see in this next stage? So we're still analysing the data from uh, there was the Predict One study, which was mainly UK twins with a few uh, people in, in, in Boston. And we're still analysing some of that data. We've got some papers coming out on um, the effects of sleep, uh, how that affects your meals and your hunger levels. And it plays a really big part. We've got some other data looking at intermittent fasting and meal times about whether you compress your meals and how that affects your hunger levels, etc. We've got um, data on exercise about uh, whether you, some people are better off eating before or after their meals. Um, and uh, in January, we published uh, a paper really focused on the, the findings from the gut microbes. And so with this new sequencing method, which is giving us every year 10 percent uh, more species than we had the year before, we can we identified 15 bugs uh, that are good and 15 bugs that are bad that just about everyone has. These are very common ones, the sort of common denominators, because generally, you know, we've all got unique bugs, but it's hard to say much about them if they're too unique. But these 15 good and 15 bad guys, we found for the first time, and if anyone's wanted to look it up, we published it in in Nature Medicine uh, in January, so a prestigious journal, and it shows that we were able to link these 30 bugs with health outcomes, you know, uh, bad cholesterol levels and heart disease, blood pressure, etc. Things you don't want. And we also linked it on the other side with foods. And this was the first study that ever actually linked microbes associated with health with the same microbes associated with certain foods. And these were f- foods that were both plant-based and animal-based, and they could be good or bad. This is really the, the first time we've been able to give specific recommendations to people in order to boost the uh, 15 good 
microbes that you might not have enough of and try and uh, avoid foods uh, in order to suppress the maybe the inflammatory, you know, nasty bugs you don't really want that might be upsetting your metabolism. So that um, that really was a, a big breakthrough, which which means also that as we continue to get more data, because now we're moving from the experimental stage to the commercial stage, it's still a research project. So we're getting we're doing a thousand people a month now um, who are going through this this project that are donating all their their samples back to science, so we can put them in this database and and, and get increasing numbers of these um, food associations uh, with the microbes and so improve our uh, what we're doing uh, so that that's happening anyway and what we're also going to be interested in, we haven't got the data yet but is doing follow-ups so at the moment people who do the program uh, get uh, their results they get an app and then most of them are agreeing to go onto a four-week plan where they try just to follow the app to guide them about which foods they should, you know, make these swaps or choose between, uh, and then record how they feel. And most of them are, uh, as you'd expect, losing some weight, you know, but that's not the main sort of emphasis. But they, you know, they will uh, lose two or three kilos, but they're noticing their energy levels are really much higher than they were, which we didn't expect, and their hunger levels are less. So clearly, you know, this focusing on reducing these peaks of fat and, and, and glucose and improving the microbiome does have these other effects, which, which may be less obvious than we thought. But the, and we want these people then to uh, retake tests to see if long-term we can start improving the gut microbes and uh, start improving so that if they're better, then you'll have a, a, a smaller metabolic uh, response to the same food so that you can sort of long term train your body to uh, improve itself, if you like. Uh, that That's really the, the, the plan going forward. So it's, we're scaling up at the moment. I think we've already got 30,000 people on the waiting list in the UK. Uh, so we've got plenty of uh, future customers, which you know, we're, we're just hoping we can uh, deal with them as many as we can fast. And, um, uh, and you know, and you just think the scale of it, we can have hundreds of thousands of, of people in this study, millions soon. Uh, it's a very exciting time. It is. And it does sound really fascinating. We will put a link in the episode description for perhaps those who are interested in signing up. Now, my last question for you, if we go back to dietary components and the gut microbiota, are there any dietary components that we don't have any evidence to support yet, but you think we might do in the future? Well, we we haven't really tapped many of the natural uh, chemicals in plants uh, and foods. That's definitely, they're definitely true. And of course, still many of the microbes themselves are, are uh, don't have names or and in our list of 30, we had several that still don't have a name that, uh, you know, shows how new this area is. And we, we actually found that one of the good guys was a, a parasite. So, um, called blastocystis. And you wouldn't normally have thought of that as a, something you'd want to put in a yogurt or something, but, um, 
in theory, there's this whole area of uh, other parasites or maybe even fungi uh, that we're going to find in the future would be beneficial for our, for our health in certain people, I think. So I think these combinations of these um, these new bugs uh, plus uh, looking at all these plant chemicals, I think, are important. And there's a whole other area as well, um, uh, uh, postbiotics, which is is a term that's increasingly used for the metabolites that the microbes themselves produce. So we know they produce things like, you know, serotonin, which is important for the keeping us from being depressed. And that's an example of one. They will break down some of these components to produce this, that these could be artificially grown up in labs or genetically engineer the microbes to produce these chemicals. And these would then act on the body, either as a probiotic or um, so that there's some evidence that when the microbes produce the chemicals, they work better than when you just take them uh, as a as a supplement or a tablet. So I think this whole area of how to not actually grow the grow microbes, but actually how do you cultivate them so they make the key chemicals for you, I think is is also a really exciting uh, new area in this field. Well, thank you so much, Professor Tim Spector, for joining us today in our podcast episodes. I think we've really touched on some interesting topics such as polyphenols, emulsifiers, personalized nutrition, and even postbiotics. Thanks for tuning in. For more information and to sign up for future episodes of our Microbiome Matters podcast, go to yakult.co.uk forward slash HCP.